Welcome everybody back to the Rooted and Edified show. I'm your host, Kat Elias, along with our co-host, Manny Elias. Hello. And you are joining us for a special, special episode titled Saved by Grace. And to help us out to understand God's sovereignty and salvation, we have a special guest, Cesar Lopez. Happy dance for you. All right. Before I introduce our special guest, Cesar, to you a little bit more, I want to remind you about a few things about this podcast. This podcast is part of Beautifully Rooted, which is a Christian mental health and education corporation. And this show, The Rooted and Edified Show, is a fun-loving, no-facade, conservative Christian worldview show for both men and women who want to hear the four T's, which would be testimonies, topics, talents, and theology, of course. We want to help you grow deeper in your relationship with Christ and more mature along your Christian walk. And if we can get a few laughs on the side, we are all for that. As a reminder, we put out both an audio podcast and a video one. So whichever is your preference, there's something available to you. And if you have watched this episode and you just love what we're doing here and you want to find out more or be a part of what we're doing, feel free to check out our website, which is www.beautifullyrooted.com, which is spelled B-E-Y-O-U. And feel free to contact us on there. We would love to hear from you. So now let's jump in and welcome our special guest, Cesar Lopez again. And let me tell you a few things about this man of God here. Cesar is married to his lovely wife, Wendy, and they have five children ages three to 16. So a wide range of ages, just like us. Just like us. Yes. He works as an electrician and he is an elder at our local Christian church. Cesar, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself? Well, there's nothing very special about me. It's just I'm just a Christian man who fell in love with the Word of God and experienced the life-changing power of the gospel and fell in love with, with Him and His Word and have been transformed by that and gave me a passion to just search the scriptures and learn truth and started loving the Lord and, and, and His Word. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Amen. Well, we're thankful Amen. for that and very glad that you're here. And we're just going to jump right in. The topics we're going to discuss today are pretty big topics. They are topics that Christians don't often agree on, and sometimes they divide over. Some people would run from it instead of diving deeper, but you're passionate about these topics. Please share with us, why do these specific topics, God's sovereignty and salvation, why does it draw you in and why are you so passionate about sharing about them? Well, one of the reasons why these topics draw me in and and I'm passionate about them is because What's at the core of some of these topics that we're going to be discussing at the very center of this is our beliefs about God, our beliefs about who he is, his nature, and by extension, our beliefs about ourselves. And so I think that those are very important because there's nothing more consequential than what we believe about God. That's going to have eternal ramifications. What we believe about, I mean, Jesus, I'm thinking of the Lord when he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will perish in your sins. I think that they're very, it's very important what we believe about God and some of these topics, that's what's at the core of them, our beliefs about God. And not only that, that's one thing, but also what's, uh, oh, that draws me in here too, is that I think one of the grave mistakes that we've made in, in American evangelicalism is that of having a low view of God or, or we think of God as being a little God. You know, I'm thinking of a book that I read called The uh, Yawning at Tigers. And in that book, the, the man was talking about, he gave the analogy of the great magnitude of being before a tiger who's a great beast and, and should put some dread into us if we're near, if we encounter a tiger up in the, in the wilderness somewhere, we should be, you know, our hearts should be pumping out of our chest with fear and dread and nervousness and anxiety because of the power that this beast possesses. 
And yet we're not like that before mm. God, you know. We yawn as if we're at God, you know, and, and we fall mm. asleep in the things of God. And, and I think that, that that's a horrible thing. You know, I, I think they did an, a, a poll one time of asking people that used to be churchgoers, um, why did they stop going to church? And one of the main reasons was that they thought church and, and, and the, the Bible were irrelevant and that they were boring. That's crazy because what better thing to do than to flood our minds with the thoughts of God? I mean, we're created in His image. We're created to understand God, to know God. And yet we push back on that. You know, we do not follow that. And I think that that's one of the things that draws me in here. And um, I've noticed throughout the years of, in our culture that there's a, a big push against the idea of having a big God. I mean, we push back on the idea of a God who's up in heaven and who, when the nations are playing against Him and His Messiah, that He sits up in heaven and He laughs. And, and we push back on those ideas about God being a God who's in heaven doing whatever he wants. I'm thinking of Job. After 38 chapters, we see the great suffering of this the servant of God, right? Job. And Job questions God, you know, says, why after 38 chapters, why has this happened to me? And God ironically doesn't even answer the question. He says, you're going to ask me? He says, you stand up on your two feet like a man and I'm going to ask you. And then he tells him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? And it demands an answer from Job. He tells them, where were you when I told the, the sea, you will come up to here and no more. And so I think that you, the scriptures paint a picture of a God who's omniscient, omnipotent, in control, you know, sovereignly in control of every aspect of every, I, I like, like what um, R.C. Sproul says. He says, there's, what did he say? He said, um, there's no maverick um, cell. There we go. There's not a maverick molecule that's not in control, that God is not in control of. Amen. And so that's a, that's a big God. We cringe at that in our American evangelicalism. We fight against the idea that says that God is a potter and we're the clay. And we ought not to say, the clay never says to the potter, why have you made me in this way? Correct. We fight against the truth that God, that it says in, in Romans 9, right? It says clearly that God has mercy on whom he wills and that he has, he hardens whom he wills. That's a frightful, that's a scary God in, in our reality. I think you're right. Absolutely. The concept of being chosen by God. And one of the things that I think that really scares us as, you know, especially Americans who value freedom and independence mm -hmm. is what we consider free will and what we consider autonomy, meaning self-governing. You know, I make my own decisions. I do whatever I want. And sometimes instead of being a comfort, the idea and the concept of a sovereign God that controls everything scares us because it threatens in a certain way our idealization mm. of what we consider to be independence and freedom. Right, I agree. I think we tend to really struggle with those concepts about God. You know, but it, it, in our reality, to the Christian, it's comforting because who else do we want to be in control but a perfect, oh, almighty, absolutely. good God? Absolutely, he, brother. Why? Because he is good. In humanity, there is none righteous, none good. No, no one is good, right? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So therefore... The fact that God is in control is a good thing because he is good. Jesus said there's none good but God. And so because he is good, he's the only one worthy of having control. Well, not only worthy, but the only one that can, that can exercise control perfectly without any blemish. Everything's perfect in God. And so I, I just, I think that in American evangelicalism, we fight against that. And I think it's sad because, I mean, there's so much comfort to be gained from those truths about God being God. <laughs> amen. Amen. And this is why we have you here today. And we're so thankful that you're joining us because you have this passion inside and we know that you have deep biblical understanding and we're glad that you're sharing that with us today. 
Can you remind us, what is that book that you had mentioned, just in case somebody wanted to go and look that up? Yeah, it's uh, called uh, Yawning at Tigers, God Cannot Be Tamed, So Stop Trying. It's a subtitle. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So let's jump in to this really important topic. Let's start off with defining salvation. What is that and why do we need it? Well, we got to start by acknowledging that salvation in the scriptures is a broad term. It's used in multiple different ways. It's used in the Old Testament, for example, when during the, the period of the judges, where Israel would sin and kind of walk away from the things of God and turn away from God. And then they would be oppressed by their military enemies, you know, like the Philistines. And it says that God will raise up a judge for them and the judge would deliver them, would save them, save them from their difficulties. You know, so in that sense, it's using salvation in a term of being saved from an enemy or military enemy. It also talks about being saved from being wrongfully accused. And I'm thinking of Philippians where Paul, writing to the Philippians in Philippians chapter one, he's thanking them for the praise. And he says, I know that your prayers will lead to my deliverance, to my salvation, to being brought out of prison. And so it speaks of it in that terms. It also speaks about being saved from sickness in James chapter five, where it talks about if any of you are sick, let them call to the elders of the church and let them pray over them. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And so it talks about being saved from sickness. But typically as Christians, when we talk about salvation, we're referring to the ultimate salvation, the capitalist salvation, if you would. We're referring to being saved from eternal hell, eternal damnation, from being saved from the just retribution of God for our sin. And so that's actually, that's typically what we mean as Christians when we refer to salvation. Okay, so I think we got a really good idea of what salvation is now. Can you tell us why do we need it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in order to speak about why we need it, I just want to read a little bit of scripture, if you don't mind. I don't mind. We don't mind at all. So I'll just read out of Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. And this is answering the question, why do we need salvation? And it says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, has been, he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hmm. So essentially, that summarizes why we need it. You know, I mean, I'm thinking of the words, I see the words who spurned the Son of God and has outraged the spirit of grace. I think, you know, I always tell people when they talk about why they need salvation, I always remind them, man, you know, all that God has done, God sent his son without sin, born of a virgin, perfect. Uh, He humbled himself and became a man and took upon a human nature to pay the price for my sin. And, And then he says to the people, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And people say, no, I don't want it. And I'm like, do you understand what God did? I mean, think about the father, right? He put his son and, son and his son willingly went to a brutal death, endured the cup of the wrath of God for our sake. And people say, I think I'm good enough. Man, can you like, I mean, just the word that is said, right? outrage the spirit of grace. The last person you want to be outraged at you is God. I mean, that's why Jesus would say things like, do not fear man who can take away your life and afterwards can do nothing. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, do not fear man. He says, no, you have your, your fear in the wrong place. He said, do not fear man who can take away your life mm. and, and afterwards do nothing. Rather, fear him who can take away your life and afterwards cast your soul into hell. That's who you should fear. And so I think that 
that's why we need salvation. God is just, and God will punish sin. God is holy, perfect, and we are not. And that puts us in a dreadful position. We have a problem, and God stepped in to take care of the problem, and that's why we need salvation. Every single person needs to be repentant and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation that God has so graciously and kindly and in His mercy and love offered to us. You know, And, and that's what it means to hear about when well, you know and ironically in evangelicalism in our american evangelicalism we always hear about the love of god but we never hear explain what that love means and so it means that god took everything went to the extreme to save a sinner like myself undeserving and so when we personalize that then we understand like oh my goodness god this is grace this is something I, I did not deserve. I mean, I love Romans, right? It says, Romans, I think it's five, where it says, in due time did Christ die for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get better. He went and saved us. We were dead in sin. He rose us, gave us. I mean, I, I like the example when he's talking to Lazarus in Luke 11, he's, he goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he says, Lazarus, arise. And why, I mean, that's ironic, right? That he, he gives a command to a dead man. Mm-hmm. But not only does he give him a command, but he enables the dead men to arise, to fulfill the command. So in the same sense, we're dead in our sins, and we cannot come to life unless God regenerates us and gives us life. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for that, Caesar. And I think that one of the things that I see in Scripture with regards to salvation as well is how even the name of the Lord himself, Jesus, means the one who would save his people. Mm. It means salvation. It's derived from the same Hebrew name for Joshua. You know, which also means salvation saves them. And to me, one of the things that I, I remember as well, Caesar, from my experience um, with salvation, is I love what Paul tells the Romans about salvation. He says, after describing them as sinners and after saying, you know, there is God's wrath for the sinner, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. But why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because he realizes what's at stake. Because it is, listen to this, not the power of man, the power of of God unto salvation for the Jew and the Greek. And it is the righteousness of God that's obtained through faith, for faith and through faith, right? And to me, when you realize the concept of salvation and you realize first and foremost that to really understand that concept, you have to also understand how lost you are and how hopeless you are without him. And that all that power to save resides solely in Christ. Saved by grace. And what a difference with a Christian religion. Mm, absolutely. Versus other religions that say, almost every other religion, right? Is it yeah. every religion or almost, almost, every religion, almost every religion? But that says that you are good enough or you can be good enough. And if you can be good enough, then you can have salvation. And all these religions have these rules that you have to follow. Yet, if you fail on those rules, what happens? You don't make it. You're out. You're, You're out. Cut. To, to be you honest with you guys, when you think about... Meriting. We're so used in this country to what we something something that actually I think is good when it comes to society and when it comes to financial independence. It's called meritocracy, hmm. which means you could merit your way to financial freedom. You can work your way up. That's one of the beauties of capitalism, I right. think. However, at the same time, we begin to extend that and to utilize that concept, that idea almost into everything else. We merit this. We merit that. I deserve this. But in reality, no one deserves salvation. We all deserve condemnation. Yet it is by his grace that he determines by his soul, will, and purpose. I choose you and I save you. 
And we are going to jump into that in a little bit. Before we jump into the big question, one of the big questions of can we lose our salvation? Hmm. For those that might not know, how do they gain salvation? Let's just give them a little brief reminder of how do you gain salvation? Most of our listeners might know, but some might not. So how can one get this salvation that you speak of? Where do they buy that? Well, Just you can't buy it. <laughs> it is the grace of God. I think one gift of, of one, God, right? right? The gift. One of the things that Manny mentioned, I love that is before you can obtain the salvation, you must recognize that you don't deserve it, that you don't earn it, that you're unworthy of it. I think that's one of the prerequisites is that you have to recognize that you're sinful. Because if you don't realize that, then you will never notice your need for a savior, right? I love what Ray Comfort says. If a doctor diagnoses a patient with cancer, and then he shows them the pictures and explains to them what cancer does and what is done to other people before him and the seriousness of this disease and you know everything that's going on there, and then says, but I have this little pill that could heal you. The person, the moment they're convinced about the gravity of the disease, they'll run and take that pill mm. and say, I, I'll take that. But if they if they believe that they don't need it, then they will never take that. That's a great example. And, and guys, you know what that reminds me of? Of you guys remember this same analogy that the Lord Jesus used with the Pharisees. I have come not to heal those who are already whole, those who are healthy, but those who are sick, even though they were all sick. But what he meant was those who are healthy in their own eyes, right. they think they don't need to be healed. So to gain salvation, what would somebody need to do? They would need to trust in the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. You know, I, I, I was going to mention this later on, but there's a book that I read. It's called To the Anxious Inquirer About Salvation. It's an older book, and it uses a little phrase that I gravitated to, and I loved it because it says, if you ever have an, a moment where you have a religious inclination, in that moment, he says, who's to say that God and his sovereignty is not drawing you to himself? And so he says, whatever you, whenever you have a, an inclination to truth, Absolutely like jump on it, grab it. It's the Lord calling you. Yes. Feed that. Read the scriptures. Seek after God. That's why God will say, seek and you will find. Ask and it shall be given. In that manner, like when you sense that you're not good enough, that's, you know, I love, I love John chapter three, where Jesus is speaking about being born again, right? He says, the wind blows and you don't know where it's going or where it comes from. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. So in the same manner, we don't know the mysterious works behind the scenes in the spiritual realm that God is moving in. But we know when we have a conviction of sin and we hear the gospel and we say we want that. If that's a true desire, rest assured that that's a work of God. Because nobody comes to the Son unless the Father draws them, Jesus said. And no one comes to the Father unless it's through the Son. Right. <laughs> You mentioned R.C. Sproul earlier, and he, he was definitely one of my favorite theologians, Christian philosophers and writers. And I, I think it was in one of his series on that he did video series, you know, on, on, on theology. And in one of them, he, did, he was discussing salvation and he was debating, I think, someone who mentioned somehow drawing, you know, what the word draw means. Where it says he will draw us unto himself. He will draw us. And. It's referring, it's a reference to like somebody literally drawing water from a well. Like the water cannot draw itself up and the water cannot refuse to be drawn. Initially, when that bucket or that pail hits the water, it starts making a little effect in the water. It's not drawn yet, the water, but the water already senses and, you know, it's already making an effect. In the same way, I don't know if you guys remember prior to your salvation, to really coming to Christ, Maybe episodes, glimpses in your life prior to that, where you already felt that pell hitting your water. Blim, blim. 
moments, didn't, right? Don't we all have that who are believers? Like, man, I remember God. I felt God's, but I refused to at that moment. But eventually, the Lord's will is done in us when he chooses us. And I love what Paul says. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. He says, I was chosen by God at, in my mother's womb. But in his due time, he revealed his son in me, which was after he persecuted the church. Later, a lot later in life. We don't know when it's going to happen. But when we are chosen by God, I think at that moment of our salvation, we will look in hindsight sometimes and say, hmm, I remember those moments right. when the Lord was already calling me to him. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Romans chapter 8, right, where it's been called the golden chain of redemption, Correct. where it says um, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And it says those whom he predestined. He called, and that's I think that's what you're referring to, like that's calling, correct. right? Correct. And it's effectual, right? So okay. he he predestined, he called he those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he so glorified. It's the it's the eternity, you know, the salvation, eternity past, predestined in in in, in the present time, called, and at that moment justified, and then eternity future glorified. I think it is eight twenty eight. Right, eight twenty eight. And then I love how he says glorified in past tense, Literally. like it's a finished work <laughs> at the cross. Thank you for that. A big question. Once we have salvation, can we lose it or are we eternally secure in Christ? So I would say, no, we cannot lose it. We are eternally secure. And I'm thinking, I'm going to bring a couple of verses real fast. Again, Romans 8, but the very end of Romans 8, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he says, what can separate us from the love of God? I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor height nor, nor depth Nothing. nor angels nor principalities nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God. And so that's right there, some, no, any other created thing. And by definition, the only uncreated is God. You know? so, and God cannot lie, right? So he will not go back on his, on his promise, right? And then I'm thinking of John chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking and he says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And then he says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. You know? And then he goes on and he says, and my father is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of his hands. And then he says, I and the father are one. He, I, I just love that analogy because he's, he's calling on two persons of our triune God, the father and the son, holding us in his hands. And I mean, what can be more secure than that, right? Nothing else is sure except God. Yes. So I think we cannot lose it. But there is a, a ditch on both sides of the road. So some people misunderstand this, this eternal security, this and they'll call it by things like once oh, saved, always saved. Right. And they use that in a, in a kind of derogatory way. Absolutely. Yeah. And they, they'll say things like it's just a, gives us license to sin. It's licentiousness. But that's not the case. No, because not at all. Romans at all. 6 says, how can we who die to sin continue to live therein? And actually, it's a good thing that people ask that question or draw up that conclusion that it will lead to licentiousness because, you know, you're in the right track. When the same question that people are bringing up is the same question that Paul anticipated in the epistles. Because in Romans chapter 6, Paul says, he's, Romans chapter 5, I'm sorry, Paul's speaking and he says that we're in the last atoms, that we're saved in Christ. And then he goes on and he anticipates the question of the, the hearers. In chapter 6, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And then he anticipates the question that people would ask, well, should we sin more so that we could have more grace? And then he says, with the exclamation point, he says, certainly not. He's what like, a sacrifice, huh? Right. They're like, should I sin more? Yeah. He's like, no, you know, how can you who die to sin continue to live therein? You know, so that's one side of the 
of the ditch on the one side of the road. And on the other side is the idea that we can, that if we think we could lose our salvation, that we somehow have to strap up our boots, gird up our loins, muscle it out, and just by our own strength, remain saved. That's flawed as well. Because at the end of the day, salvation is a work of God. I I think of Galatians where Paul talks to the Galatians in a pretty strong terms. He says, oh, Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, are you not going to be made perfect in the flesh? And that's a rhetorical question. Like, no, of course not. This whole thing is begun by the the work of God. So don't try to keep. I I love what what, um, MacArthur says. He says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, because he says, you know, how arrogant mm-hmm. would it be for someone to say, well, I was saved by grace and, you know, by my own works, I still keep my salvation. Like, I've, I'm maintain, I'm good enough to stay saved. Like, no, you're mm-hmm. saved by grace and you're kept by grace. And so I think that that's a couple of ditches that we can fall mm-hmm. on on either side of the road. My personal experience with this is that I once held a very strong Arminian view because mm-hmm. I grew up in the Pentecostal church. Maybe you want to define what Arminian is? Absolutely. There's two pretty much ideas with regards to salvation. And there's two prominent theologians who represented these views. Arminian was one of them. And then John Calvin was another. So they'll label sometimes people who believe in eternal security, Calvinist. And then those who believe that you can lose your salvation are normally labeled as Arminian because they hold to Arminius views. However, the way I pretty much see the contrasting doctrinal views is legalism versus something called antinomianism. So antinomianism is a word that means against law. Like people who think there is no law for me. I can live however I want since I'm saved. And some may even go to the extreme of saying, well, at least my dad was a save drunkard or a save, you know, what's it called? Adulterer. Mm. Because he once, he once repeated a phrase at the altar and, and gave his life to Christ. Like of that itself, and I think in American evangelicalism, we've taken that to an extreme. Mm. Like repeat the sinner's prayer and that saves you. No, it's Christ who saves you, right? It's Christ who saves you and you will bear the fruit of salvation. However, I think when they imply that you can live however you want, and that's where a lot of people that hear this will think that whoever believes in eternal security, whoever believes that you can't save your salvation, is implying that you could live however you want. And that's not at all what being saved means. Because technically, if you are saved, one of the things that you're saved from is not just hell, but the sinful lifestyle you once lived. So you can no longer live in that lifestyle, right? Right. And in legalism is the the opposite, right? Which says, nope, you have to obey all these rules to really be saved, to really show that you you are saved. You must do these things to merit your salvation. And I think both of those are erroneous and to a certain degree where, no, it's true that you have to live a life demonstrating the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But that's through the Holy Spirit that indwells us, right? And and one of the things that I've also um, noticed, especially when I held to this view, is that I held to this view because this is what was taught to me from the pulpit. It literally filled me with a lot of fear, to be honest with you guys. Because mm. I would think, man, what if I suddenly have a bad thought and the Lord Jesus returns like that next moment. Right. I'd be so fearful thinking, or before I used to hold to the pre-trip rapture view too. And I thought, well, the Lord's going to come and I'm going to stay. He's going to leave me because I had this bad thought or I had sin. 
That's not at all what it what salvation is. And a lot of times there are certain passages that they really take out of context, and I think Caesar might address some of them. But one of the things that I observed as, as I was um, growing in my knowledge of Scripture is that I started to read the Scripture, and the Scripture didn't agree with what I was being taught from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. It, I, and I'm like, wait a minute. No, th- this has to be true because the pastor is saying this. But then I started seeing in scripture and guess what would happen when I read passages like the one you quoted in John 10. My sheep know, hear my voice. They know me. And then he says, I have chosen you. But then he also says, no one will snatch you from my hand. But then that preacher would say or the pastor, but you can snatch yourself from his hand. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that scared me because I'm wicked. But then it begs a question, right? Well, who's in control here? Absolutely. Good point. Good point. And the other thing that I saw, guys, was this. Every time that the scripture apparently implies, it's implicit, not explicit. It's implicit that you can lose your salvation. It uses certain metaphors, analogies. For example, the dog returns to his vomit. Or, or the pig returns to its, what's it called? Miry clay or, or its mud, right? And the thing is... When it speaks about salvation, it's very clear and it's explicit. You are saved and you have eternal life, not when you die. As soon as you believe in Christ, as soon as you believe in Christ and you give your life to Christ, that's when eternal salvation starts. It's not that there's salvation, then resalvation a year later, then resalvation maybe two years later if you backslide. Instead, there's reconciliation. You reconcile with the Lord, but you're not resaved. Salvation is a one-time thing. So Caesar, just to recap, why do some people that hold the view that you can lose your salvation, why do they believe you can lose your salvation? Well, I think a lot of times well, the reason why they believe those things is like Manny was saying, you know, it talks about, you know, it takes some obscure passages that are a little, a little vague, not, not so clear, and they're implicit, not Correct. explicit, right? Correct. I think sometimes they're trying to account. They're trying to account. They're trying to put a category for a group of people that once we're in their church and we're professing believers. Good point. And we're active members and serving and probably even giving to the church and apparently on fire for the Lord. And now they're denying the faith, you know, or they are openly living a a lifestyle that's contrary to the Christian lifestyle. So so they try to make a category for this and they say, why? I'm pretty sure this person was saved because they prayed a prayer or they walked an aisle or they were serving and they seemed to have had. Saw them at church every Sunday. Right. You know, and and, and they spoke about the Lord and there was some apparent change in their lives and and now they don't believe. So then what happened? They must have lost it. I think that that's one of the reasons why they believe that idea that you can lose your salvation. Another reason why I think they hold to that sometimes is because in good faith, they're trying to keep people from becoming stagnant. that is true try and motivate good works and try and help help them self-examine and not become just lukewarm, you know, like the Bible says that we, should, we shouldn't be. And so they try to kind of use this as a fear tactic to motivate people to persevere or to remain in the faith or to do things. Hmm. That's a really good point. I think when they think that by instilling certain fear in you, like, don't touch the stove because you're going to get burned, right? Don't touch the stove, child, because you're going to get burned. At the same time, it's like, don't even dare to sin because you're going to lose your salvation. And I remember the church that I went to, guys, went as far as if they found out that you had sinned. And I'm not even talking about a so-called capital sin, like right. a really big sin. But you messed up in anything or you messed up and they found out you had sinned. Man, it, it was kind of awkward because they'd approach you when they saw you at church and they would no longer say, Brother Caesar. They'd say, hey, Caesar, or, or they'd call you in Spanish, Baron, like, man. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, man, you're not calling me brother anymore, you know, mm-hmm. because... They, 
what they were saying is you're still con you can still come to the church. They wouldn't excommunicate you. But they'd let you know by just calling you man versus brother that they thought you, were, you had lost your salvation. Now, speaking about somebody who is in the church and they look like they're a Christian and then it looks like they fell away and therefore some people believe that they lost their salvation. What would you say to those people who believe that, yes, they lost their salvation because you can, it's evident. They had their salvation. They were evidently, if that's a word, what does they the were Bible evidently say about those people, right? were Christian, but now they certainly, from my assessment, are not Christian. What would you say to that? I would say, first of all, that I think they're misunderstanding what salvation is because First John says that they left out from among us because they were never really of us, but they left out so that they, so that they left from among us so that they, it might be manifest that they never really were of us. So in other words, it's saying that the fact that they rejected the faith is a proof that they probably never had the faith. If they think that somebody can lose their salvation, they're just misunderstanding what salvation is because the Bible talks about us. Salvation is a regeneration. It's given a new nature. It's talk, it talks mm -hmm. about it being as born again, Correct. born from above, regenerated, a new, a new heart. And those things are all works of God. And I think what's very telling about that kind of stuff is that if we're going to say that somebody can lose their salvation, that implies greater, that puts in our path greater difficulties with who God is. Here's why I say that, because sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that theology is different compartments. You have soteriology here, this is salvation, and then over here is end times things, uh, you know, eschatology, and then this is category is uh, what we believe about God, what we believe about the church, and what we believe about man. And these are different compartments, and they're all individual and standalone. But that's not how theology is. Theology is more like a, like a tapestry, where if you tug on one end, something else down the line is going to mm. come undone. And so when we say somebody can lose their salvation, immediately it calls into question the character of God. Why is that? Because salvation is a work of God. And so then we, we have to ask, wait, what happened here? Did God lie? Did he, did he go back on his promise? You know, like, Does he hate me now? <laughs> does he hate me? Yeah. Did he, <laughs> did he profess to love me and now hates me? Like, what's going on here? You know, it, did, did he change? Man, God forbid, right? The Bible is explicit that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot change. God cannot lie. And so those things, saying that somebody lost their salvation, it brings up implicitly a flaw in the nature of God. And so I think that that's why I would disagree with people that believe that, because in their desire to put a category for those people who have walked away, they're doing harm to the nature of God. And sometimes they don't realize it, but if we just follow the logic, then it begs the question, wait, what happened with God here? Because this is the work of God. I found rest when I understood that my salvation was entirely, not just initially, entirely in his hands. Right. I found rest. I really did. I remember I even had a sigh of relief hmm. when I really understood the doctrine of salvation. I'm like, oh, thank God it depends on you, Lord. <laughs> thank God it depends on you. And that's in contrast to what you said about anxiety. Oh, boy. Because when you believe you can lose your salvation. And I think you went through the same thing, right? I did. Where the moment I, with the sins that I caught, I thought something, I was upset at something that wasn't righteous. Mm. Immediately, I felt like I had to say a prayer right then for forgiveness. I receive you again. I mean, I mean Lord, receive me please, again. Please forgive me for <laughs> yeah, my sins. In case, like, if I'm, in a, if I'm driving on the street and I got mad at a person who cut me off or they were going too slow and I needed to go fast and I had a, an unrighteous thought, right. and then I had to ask for forgiveness right then when I believed this, that you can lose your salvation, I had to ask for forgiveness right then in case I got in a motor vehicle accident right then and I didn't <laughs> want to go to hell right. because I got mad at that 
Yes, that is love. correct. That is correct. And that's why we see a lot of times in churches, not only do we see the big drawing for an altar call, come and receive the Lord, but then we say, oh, rededicate your life. One of the reasons why I think that we see that a lot is because, you know, we, we try to make a category for these people. So mm. I think that, you know, in my own personal opinion, I think that sometimes it's not most of the people that I've talked to. And, and just from thinking through some of the things, I think most of the time when people are, quote unquote, rededicating their lives, oftentimes it's, it's that they're getting it saved initially. That's a really good point. Good yeah. point. Yeah, that they never had it. You know, I, I could recall something like that similar in my own experiences where I came to the Lord and, and my wife can attest to this where I came, I came to the Lord and I was like, hey, I think I want to serve the Lord and this and that. But there was no... There was no power in the gospel at that point. You know, there was nothing. There was... There had been no transformation. Right. You know, there regeneration. Was, right. right. Good, good point. There was no regeneration. There was no new nature, no new heart. You know, so I was mm. powerless. But then when the Lord came and, and then made me be born again, the Lord... I, I, one of the things that was a mark for me was I read the scriptures again and they were different. They were alive. They were blowing my mind. I couldn't believe what was mm. there. And I understood a lot of it, you know? Opened the scriptures to you. <laughs> right. After that, I, you know, made a profession of faith. I got baptized. And, but then my life changed. My desire for my old sins faded away. They, some of them just dropped off immediately. Some of them took some time. But there was an, a clear change, not only to me, but even to my family and my wife and kids. At that point, like, they, they started seeing, like, something's different with this guy. You know, Hallelujah. Think, yeah, absolutely. And, and what it was, I think, at the end of the day, I'm look, looking back and I'm like, I don't think I was saved for that first period. I just don't think I was saved. I think that I had a, a desire, kind of like I, I kind of was trying to understand these things. And then uh, but maybe hadn't made the decision yet to follow Christ. Right. I think that the Lord came and, and then just gave me life. <laughs> That's the only way I can put it. Being born again kind of has that analogy of where in the beginning, when God makes Adam and Eve, he breathes into them the breath of life and they become living beings. So in the same way, you know, God breathes life into us and we become born again, regenerate beings. We're spiritually alive to the things of God after that. Amen. Now, what about when the Bible speaks about working out your salvation? Is that something that people might take out of context or misinterpret to justify that you can lose your salvation, considering if they think that maybe we can work out our salvation? Right. So that's that's Philippians chapter two. And I love that verse because you know, I've, I've read it multiple times and I've sat there and, and banged my head on the table, you know, trying to figure out what this means, you know. But um, so Philippians chapter two, which we don't recommend right. banging your head on the <laughs> table to try don't to figure that. it out. So that's why you're going to explain it. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get that from John Piper. where he's, I love Piper. You know, he said when you're reading the word of God and you're preparing for something you read and you ask the Lord for mercy and you ask him for understanding. And if that scripture still you don't understand, he say you. You get on your knees, you pray, you bang your head on the table, and you keep reading, and then you do it over and over. <laughs> so I just, I just, I think it's a wrestling with scripture is right. is a beautiful thing. Right. So to the point of uh, Philippians, where he says, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." That's Philippians two twelve. But then the very next verse tells us why we work it. <laughs> but it does say, "Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." And then verse thirteen says, "For because it is God who works in you both to will mm. and to do for His good pleasure." So I think it, it oftentimes a Christian life seems like we're working, like we're doing the work and we're in the, in the trenches and we're doing it. But if we would peel back, if God in his grace would allow us to peel back the currents, and we'll see this in eternity, I'm certain. If he will peel back the, the currents and, and, and let us see the spiritual what's going on behind the scenes, it is God working in us. So therefore, I, I mean, you see people who are active Christians that are doing, serving the Lord, serving his kingdom, doing things for the Lord. And oftentimes when they get asked, man, you do so much. How do you do it? How do you do all this stuff? And then most of the time, the answer is like, by the grace of God. Because we understand anything that is done, it's because God. Paul the Apostle said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
So he's saying, it is God living through me. He's empowering me, keeping me and, you know. The source of holy life, the source of discipline and obedience, the source of having a godly character is Christ himself. And would that be working at your salvation? Are those things that you just mentioned? Disciplines, the discipline part of it. For example, Paul describes this using analogies of of somebody involved in the Olympics and Mm -hmm. sports, whether you're a runner or even in something called pancreation, which was an old Greco-Roman martial art with the open palm versus a, a, a clenched fist. And in pancreation, Paul is saying, For I am not like someone who just shadow boxes. I don't punch the Mm. air, but rather I bring my body into submission. I put it in a choke and I'm like, nope, you're going to obey Christ. Why would Paul say this? Mm. Because he recognizes the aspect of discipline in the Christian life. And there's a lot of Christians who have the Holy Spirit. We are saved eternally, but don't enjoy the benefits of partaking in God's holiness. Sometimes straight up it's because we're lazy. Because we don't want to read. Because we don't want to pray. We don't want to talk to anybody about Jesus. But I think the more we involve ourselves in these things, the more the natural, the now natural that was foreign to us at one time. But now that we are born again, it's natural to us. Right. Because the Holy Spirit has given us our new nature that's now fashioned not after Adam, mm. the first Adam, but the last Adam the second man, Christ. And Paul says, just the way we bore the image of the first man, we're going to bear the image of the second man. And that's why he uses certain analogies, expressions like, take off this old man. That's old clothes, it stinks. Mm -hmm. And put on Christ, right? Get dressed with Christ. The source is not yours, but your action, the discipline to partake in it is yours. You have to get on your knees. God will compel you. God will call you many times. Mm but you have to get on your knees. And that doesn't mean you're gonna be more saved. You're saved, period. But I love what John says in 1 John 2:28. We do this so that when the Lord appears, we will not shrink away from him in shame. We're still gonna be saved. Right. But we're gonna be like, mm, Lord, I could have been so much more obedient. Why? Because we know we have the Holy Spirit. And that's where I think it's so different from our lives prior to Christ. Your nature was unholiness. And no matter what you do that appeared to be holy, appeared to be, you know, godly, was still ungodly in God's eyes. Mm. But now that you're born again, you are his child. Sometimes you don't behave like his child, like he wants you to behave, but you're his child. So let's talk about someone who receives Christ, if this is possible, if someone has received Christ, but they've backslidden. Maybe a backslidden Christian. We use that term a lot of times. So would you say that a backslidden Christian lost their salvation? Because it's probably the person that came back to Christ. But would you say they lost salvation during that time? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that they lost their salvation. I would say that once we have the Spirit, because the Bible talks about salvation being an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? So that Christian, if they're, we're using, we're, we're referencing a true Christian, right? Someone who's mm-hmm. been born again. They have the Spirit of God dwelling. Romans 8 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he's not of Christ, right? Yeah. So a person who has the Spirit of God, they backslid, they, they went to a, a lifestyle of sin for a season, they will always come back. But but I would say that they're definitely in a season where they're going to be disciplined by the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of Peter, that he denied the Lord. Right? He, in a sense, backslid right there. And not only that, but then in Galatians also, he started doing something that was leading people astray. Paul rebuked them, and then he... He repented and he was drawn back. So there was a season where he was kind of straight a little bit, especially when he denied the Lord. 
And I'm thinking of another man who sinned greatly, right? Thinking about David, he went way into, into left field, if you would, with what he did with Bathsheba and with her husband Uriah, right? Mm-hmm. And yet we see his confession in Psalms chapter 32 and Psalms chapter 51. And he says, when I kept silent, my bones grew weary within me from, from groaning all day long. And then he says his, the hand of God was heavy upon him. Mm-hmm. And that's just the truth. With somebody who's a Christian is, is in a state of backsliding, the Lord, those whom he loves, the Lord disciplines. He will discipline that Christian and will bring them back in his grace, right? Because he's good. So he's bringing them back Amen. and saving them. And that person will come back and just rest again on the grace of God. God was gracious enough to bring them back. And you know, I think that definitely a, a Christian has the potential to backslide and many do, but they never lose their salvation. They're always in Christ and they will, a backsliding Christian will always return to Christ. So that would be one of the main differences from that Christian who's in the pew and then leaves and the Christian who's in the pew leaves and comes back would be that coming back. And, and, and I think that the evidence of that and the mystery of when that happens, when that reconciliation happens and them coming to Christ is sometimes out of our view, our perspective, because it's sometimes something that could even happen. And Paul uses this in speaking to the Corinthians. He says, when you take the Lord's Supper, you guys take it without discerning the Lord's body. And he goes, and that's grave what you're doing. You know, you're taking, treating it like a common meal. However, he, he then says, but if you were to judge yourselves, if you were to examine yourselves, you would not be disciplined by the Lord. And you know, we use that in parenting. Being, yes, or but, I use it in parenting <laughs> all the time. I tell my kids, if you were to correct yourself, I won't that have to. That is so true. Right. And, and then Paul goes on to say how God corrects them. And he says, that's why some of you are sick. Other, others of you are in deathbed and some of you are already asleep, meaning they're already dead. It can get to the point where when God disciplines you, sometimes it's something that only you and God will know. And sometimes it could even be at the point of when you're gravely sick and you reconcile at the last minute. But I do believe that someone who genuinely has been born again can never sin as comfortably as before. The Holy Spirit well, you can even sear the Holy Spirit's voice, but you will feel that conviction. Right. And, and there'll definitely be a discipline. I mean, I'm thinking of David. He sinned and he got Bathsheba pregnant. He had Uriah murdered. Then he confessed. And then the Lord said when Nathan... Nathan the prophet, Nathan, yeah. Right? Nathan confronted him and then he repented. This. And Nathan said, the Lord has forgiven you. But then he said something interesting. He said, because of this sin, you gave occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme the name of God. Mm. And then he says, therefore, the child will die. And the child died, you know. Oh, so he that, had some severe consequences, David, too. Absolutely. After that, his whole household was in disarray. His son turned against him, plotted to kill him. Yeah. He definitely had a severe discipline from the Lord, but he never lost his salvation because God always still referred to him. Even after that, to the kings who came after David, they would say, A man if after God's own Right. He, if they were good, they, if they were following father God. Father David. <laughs> right. They serve God like their father David, like my servant David, he would say, you know, so. And also didn't David say in Psalm 51, return unto me, Lord, not your salvation, but the joy of your salvation. Right. 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 Now, if we can't lose our salvation, why do good things and bear fruit? What's the incentive? Well, first of all, the first incentive is the Lord said, right? The yes. Lord, the, the Lord told, yeah, the Lord commands us. Uh, John the mm-hmm. Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so he calls us to bear fruit. God tells us to bear fruit. And I think that for the true believer, the, the, mm. one of the incentives is that we delight in serving the Lord. We delight in doing good. We have a new nature. We love that. So for somebody that says, 
I'm eternally secured. I'm not going to lose my salvation. Therefore, I can live as I please. They, they, that's a proof that they don't understand salvation. Right? They don't even know. And what, they might not have ever been saved. Absolutely. absolutely. I would agree with that. Yeah, they, would, they probably are not saved because they're misunderstanding the salvation that God offers. I think that we delight in it, you know, and at the end of the day, God says that you know, he's going to judge our works. He's not going to judge us, but he's going to judge our works and by the fire. It says, and some will be like wood, hay, or stubble. They're going to be burned up and that will suffer loss. You know? But then there's some works that are going to be gold, silver, or precious stones. You know, and those will endure the fire. And right. God's going to bless us for that. I think about what Jesus said. Even if you give a cup of water to one of the least of these, it will be rewarded. So God is a gracious, generous God who will reward us and give us things because he's just good. And I don't mean just material things here on earth, but things that will endure to all eternity. I think of the parable of the talents where he said, you were faithful and little, I will make you rule over much. And, and those are things that God's going to give. And that's an incentive you know, that God helps us see that, that he's going to reward us. And, and, and those gifts are going to endure to all eternity. And we're going to be praising God for them. And, and I, I like what it says. I think it's Revelation. I can't re remember quite clearly. But if it is Revelation, it says that the 12 apostles have their crowns and they throw them at the feet of Jesus. And in other words, you're saying, you're the one that's worthy of this. I think when we see God clearly, we're going to say, man, it is all the glory belongs to the Lord. That's why I love the five solas of the Reformation where it says when you read scripture alone, you come to find out that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then it says to the glory of God alone. Amen. God will not share his glory and God will have all the glory because he's worthy and he's good. So, Amen. And I think guys in speaking with regards to even not fully backsliding, but even in our daily sins, in our daily thoughts that we stray sometimes from God's word. I think one of the things for me that's always a sign, and sometimes some people may think it's extreme or what have you, but for me in my personal relationship with the Lord, if I ever have a extraordinary, out of the ordinary pain or discomfort, one of my first thoughts is, Lord, are you trying to get my attention? Lord, am I doing something maybe that's rebellious? Am I doing something that's not in line with your word? Anytime that I have a pain in my hiney too, <laughs> I go to the Lord right away. Yes. We do, right? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I'm thankful for, believe it or not, when I have had something like that is, I thank the Lord for his discipline, man. Yeah. I'm like, thank you, Lord, for correcting me, man. Yeah. Because I know that I am your child when you correct me. Now, I mentioned that we were going to talk about election and being chosen later. But now I'm realizing that's probably an episode all on its own. I think it is. I think it definitely Maybe is. because I alluded to, we'll discuss it, and being chosen just very briefly. Can you just define what is election? What, are we, what were you guys referring to when you were speaking about that before? And for someone who's having trouble understanding how some people can have, be chosen by God to have salvation and others not, just a moment of clarity for those people? Yeah, absolutely. I think election is just God freely choosing whom he pleases. I heard of the, the covenant of, of grace, right, where God the Father chooses a people to give to the Son, and the Son partakes to become a a man to pay for those people's sins, and then he's gifted those people, you know? So, so we are a divine interchange, if you would, between the Father and the Son, you know, and the Spirit applies that salvation. So it's just a way of saying salvation is utterly and completely the grace of God. We didn't bring nothing to the mm. table. We could not offer anything to God. God is God, and he chose to save whom he wills, you know? But so, in some way, supernaturally, we choose him as he chose us. Right, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I love what First John says. He says, we love him. Because, because he first loved us. He first loved us. Yeah. And also, guys, I think one of the things that I think of, too, when it comes to that, 
being chosen by God is that even if in my deepest thoughts, I know that I want to be religious, you know, and, and I did this before I became a Christian. I was spiritual. Mm-hmm. I was into a whole bunch of spiritual things. And even though God had called me, and I know God called me, I know God elected me, God chose me. At the same time, though, I know he chose to reveal his son to me at a certain time. It wasn't before a certain time. No matter how much I tried to be spiritual, Mm -hmm. it was in my time. And I think sometimes one of the things that we forget is that he elects, not us. When we preach the gospel to someone, we sometimes think that we're electing, like, all right, I really preached such a good message to this person. I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit talking to this person. I saw in his eyes that he was about to repent. But they're like, no, no, thank you. And I'm like, what? How could you say no? Yeah. Yeah. And then there's others that I think, man, Lord, what am I doing even talking to him? I think sometimes we don't elect. And I love what Spurgeon used to say. He's like, I wish that God would put paint like a, a stripe on the back of those who were chosen and elected. Yeah. And it'd be super easy to preach the gospel. Yeah. But he commands us to preach the gospel to every creature because he's the one who elects, not us. Yeah, I remember, I remember sharing with my second son. He's uh, doing things that are uh, against the house rules, if you would, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm disciplined and I'm, I'm trying to preach the gospel to him. I'm trying to get him to get saved and understand the gospel. And so I'm preaching to him and I see... Like Manny was saying, you know, he's tearing up and he's uh, understanding this and he's like filled with emotion. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, he's he's going to make a prophet. He's, he's getting saved right now. Virgin right here. <laughs> <laughs> right. So then uh, he's, you know, I see all this emotional reaction. And I tell him, son, that's what the Lord came to forgive you of your sins. And, and you need to repent and trust in him. Would you, do you want to do that now? And he'll look at me and says, no. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? No, you know? And then, and then just naturally through time, he came to me and, said, and he's talking to me. And then without all that emotion, he just chose to say, I'm going to trust Jesus, that as my Praise Lord God. and Savior, you know? Mm. I understood his that. sin, you know? So that's, that was wonderful. Now, if we can jump into our scripture section. Do you have any particular scripture or scriptures that you wanted to highlight that pertain to today's discussion? Yeah, absolutely. I would just highlight Romans chapter 8, verses 30, I think it's 36 through 39. And then uh, uh, John chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking that he has it in his hands. I think it's verse 28, more or less. Those are the main verses that talk about the security that we have in Christ. Amen. Thank you. The scripture that I brought today was John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How about you? I actually wanted to share. um, I think it's. It's probably one of the most common scriptures in all of Christendom, or you even see it at football games. You know, John, John 3.16. 3, 16. Yeah. 3, but I think one of the things that we forget in that context is that one of the things that I love about the Gospel of John is his insight into personal conversations that Jesus had with people. This was a one-on-one conversation that Jesus had with a specific man named Nicodemus, who was right a, a Pharisee and a leader of the Sanhedrin, right? And once again, I know it's a very, very common one, but it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's John three sixteen through 19. When Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus, he's speaking to one of the greatest maybe teaching authorities in Israel. And yet at the same time, very personal telling him that this is what salvation represents, that God sends his son, you believe in his son, period. 
And this is for Nicodemus, somebody that's used to, you have to keep, what was it in the Old Testament? 262 or 620 something commandments, 620 something commandments that you had to keep as, and that's why the whole bar mitzvah represents, now you're a son of the law for the Jew Mm -hmm. at 13, right? And now you are responsible to keep all of the commandments of of the Old Testament. And yet Jesus tells him, whoever believes Mm. in the son has eternal life. That's something that the law could not give. Amen. Only Jesus could give. Now, Caesar, after all this discussion today, is there one thing that you'd have, you would want to have everybody take away if they could only remember one thing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm assuming that most of the people listening or watching this are going to be Christians. Well, they are now. (laughs) After they listen to this episode, they receive salvation. So I would just say, take courage, take encouragement that know that you're safe and secure in the arms of God in his hand. And, you know, that's a great comfort because we know and, and it helps us remember that salvation is a work of God and that God is faithful. And you know, as I'm getting older now, I, I starting to see how much how much I change, you know, and I take great comfort in the fact that God does not change. And now to mm. me, that scripture is more more meaningful because I see Amen. time passing and I see people growing. I see people doing different things and myself, my kids growing and everything. And I, I just take comfort that God, the same God who promised salvation and gave me salvation years ago has kept me and will preserve me to the end. And, and I, I love Jude. We just read Jude yesterday. We were saying that he is able, now to him who is able to present, mm-hmm. present you holy and blameless and, and without spot or blemish, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 Well, thank you so much. Caesar, for joining us today. Yes, yes. This was a great discussion and we hope that you guys got a lot out of it. And I want to thank you also that are watching today or listening. We are so thankful that you're here. Don't forget that we are also on Facebook and Instagram. You want to make sure that you follow and subscribe there because we post things on there that we're not able to post on our podcast platforms. And don't forget that we are on all major podcast platforms and our video is on YouTube. So make sure you subscribe, make sure you follow. It helps encourage us to keep Keep on going, and that way you won't miss a new episode. Now, would you mind closing us out in prayer? Sure, we could do that. Thanks. Uh, Father, we just thank you, Lord, for um, Lord, your grace that not only uh, saves us but keeps us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God who's persistent, Lord, who's consistent, who doesn't change. Uh, Lord, you've uh, what you've promised you will accomplish, Lord. Your word is as good as done. And Lord, those whom you predestined, you called. Those whom you called, you justified. And those whom you justified, you glorified, Lord. And so we just take great um, rest in that, Lord. That That's the Sabbath, Lord, the ultimate Sabbath, that we are going to be resting in the completed work of Christ. He said, Lord, it is finished. And it is finished, Lord. The, the, the work to save us has been completed. And so we just thank you for that. And we just pray, Lord, that you'd uh, help us to take courage in that and know that we are in your hands. And Lord, uh, that you grant us a desire to um, draw closer to you and to just uh, glorify you in all that we say and do, Lord. And Lord, uh, that you would just receive all the glory because you are worthy Amen. and that we would rejoice Amen. rejoice in, in the fact that, Lord, that you're, you're faithful, Lord, even when we are faithless. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you so much, Caesar. Well, thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. Until next time. Ciao. God bless. <laughs>